Until I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Today's episode is sponsored by Emblem Athletic. The best option out there for keeping your unit looking amazing with custom shirts, hoodies, and other gear. They're a veteran-owned business that specializes in making it easy for you. And if you've ever ordered unit gear, you know how difficult it can be. Emblem knows you have better things to do than design gear, collect money, and worst of all, sort through a bunch of shirts. Emblem takes care of everything, including, get this, free shipping worldwide. When it comes to something like a deployment shirt, you know you're going to have this for the rest of your life. So trust Emblem to deliver the best, guaranteed. Visit www.emblemathletic.com to get started with a free online store today. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Byerly. When we began this podcast, my goal was to bring in perspectives on leadership from outside the military. I think it's rewarding to pick the brains of senior military leaders, and we can learn a lot from them. However, a lot of the problems leaders deal with on a daily basis aren't military problems. They're people problems and systems engineering problems and problems that require a diverse and varied perspective to figure out. So, in this week's episode, we're going to sit down with Dr. Corey Shockey, who is the Director of Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at American Enterprise Institute, a D.C.-based think tank. She is absolutely brilliant, she's funny and engaging, and when you hear her story and the lessons she's learned along the way, I think it's going to help you think differently. She has learned from a diverse group of leaders, to include Dr. Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, Tom Schelling, Senator John McCain, former Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, and even her sister, who served as Michelle Obama's communications director. And she's going to talk about what she learned from them. Corey's also an expert in civil military relations, and she explains why it's important for service members to be real people on social media platforms, such as Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. And her perspective actually forced me to think differently on what's acceptable and what's not. I love her advice on reading for professional development. She says, we have to read promiscuously. And her reasons for doing so are spot on. Okay, so I'll quit talking and let Corey do the rest. So please welcome to the show, Dr. Corey Shockey. Hello, my friends. Hey, how's it going? Exceedingly well, thank you. Very nice, very nice. Yeah, maybe you could just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself. I mean, you've had a remarkable career. Could you share a little bit of that with us, as much or as little as you'd like? So I think the first thing I would say is I am interdisciplinary in my work, by which I mean to say I am badly trained as a historian, a political scientist, and a little bit of economics thrown in. I am always tickled when people think I've been incredibly strategic in managing my career, because it's so much more serendipitous than that. And I mostly think about myself as a school teacher, because even in the jobs I've been in in government, Director for Defense Strategy and Requirements on the NSC, the Deputy Director of Policy Planning at State, and a six-year stint in the Pentagon, first in the Joint Staff and then in OSD. 
I never once had the line authority for the outcomes I was responsible for producing, which means I had to do my job by finding mutually good outcomes for everyone and by helping shape how people think about the problem, which is what teaching feels like to me. Let's see, I also sailed on the pirate ship McCain in the 2008 presidential campaign. And I've taught a bunch of places, West Point, Stanford, SICE, and the University of Maryland. So that's fascinating in itself. But one thing that really stuck out to me when I was looking at your bio was your first kind of government assignment as um, (laughs) you're laughing because I know you know where I'm going with this. But I mean, you served as a NATO desk officer during a pretty influential time. How did that affect your career in one way or the other? Oh, it was the making of me, unquestionably, for a couple of reasons. While I was a PhD student, I was a student of Tom Schelling's at the University of Maryland, and he could tell I was a flight risk. And so consented to me applying for a fellowship from the American Association for the Advancement of Science that made me free to government for a year. And I managed to talk my way into the joint staff. And in August of 1990, two weeks after Iraq invaded Kuwait, I started as the NATO desk officer in the joint staff in J5. And what I didn't really appreciate about the American military until I worked in the joint staff is mostly what you all are, are great teachers. Because you live in an environment where you can't be good at your job unless you can make everyone around you good at their job. And I didn't have any of the kind of experience that gave everyone around me their judgment. So I was the weak link in everybody's chain and everybody had to teach me. So I had great teachers like Greg Newbold from the Marine Corps, Barry McCaffrey from the Army all sorts of great folks who invested in making me good at my work. And I still draw on those reflexes in the work that I do now. That's awesome, Corey. And, you know, as you look back on your career, you said that there was a lot of serendipity that took place. And you encountered a lot of amazing people like Senator McCain, Dr. Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, General McCaffrey. Who were some of the ones that you feel influenced you the most as you were coming up as a national security professional? I learned a ton from then General Powell. And one of the most important things he taught me is to choose my jobs by choosing my bosses. Because military folks don't have the same latitude that the rest of us do. But for me, it was fabulous advice because a bad job for a good boss means you and they are going to find ways to be useful to the mission, even if it's not your actual job. And in a lot of the environments that I've worked, like the NSC, the work migrates to the people able to do it. And so having a boss that I could learn from that valued what I could contribute to the team has actually been hugely important for me. So that was one great piece of advice. Barry McCaffrey, he's intemperate. He's a man with no middle speeds. And yet I probably learned more from him than any other boss I worked for because I learned so much about humility and decisiveness and leadership. I'll just give you one example. When I was leaving the joint staff and applying for jobs, I asked General McCaffrey for a recommendation and he told me to write it myself and he would sign it. 
And I did what any junior person would, right? Like I was careful and conscientious. And I explained that I had been marginally helpful in some important policy decisions. And I sent the letter to McCaffrey and he sent me back what he had actually submitted, which was something to the effect of, she's going to be the secretary of defense someday and you'll be glad you hired her now. That was it. That's pretty awesome, though. That was the entire recommendation. And so it taught me how to write pungent recommendations, but it also taught me to try and look at a problem from the perspective of the person who's making the decision, not from the perspective that I was working the problem at. And I think that's actually what I notice in staff jobs that's hugely important Because most people can't let go of the problem as they're experiencing it and try and imagine the competing pressures, including pressure of time, on the people making the decisions. But let me double back to two other great bosses I worked for. One is Dr. David Gordon, who was the director of policy planning when I was his deputy. And what was so great about him and such an important model for me was that he wasn't afraid of ideas he didn't agree with. And given the job that he was in, which was being outside of the routine policy process to catapult fresh ideas in and challenge the conventional answers, he was perfectly aligned for it. But even people who that's their mission They often carry such strong intellectual beliefs of their own that they can't limber themselves up to let other people have wider apertures on a problem. And I think that's really important for nurturing creativity and for leading creative people. And the other I would mention is my PhD dissertation advisor, Tom Schelling, who had me do all my graduate coursework, both sets of comprehensive exams and defending my dissertation prospectus all within the same year. And I went to him and said, you know, I don't think I can do this. I'm doing everything badly. And Tom gave me some of life's essential wisdom, which was, first of all, pick what you're going to do well and don't worry about what you're going to do badly. Because provided you pick what you want to do well, what you do badly isn't going to define you. And the second thing he told me was, nobody's ever going to care about any of those things because I'm going to tell people you're the student I'm proudest to have taught. So none of this matters. Go and do your work. And I realized that's such great leadership, both because he thought he saw talent in me and was giving me permission not to be perfect because he thought it was really important for me to improve my trade craft at what I was really going to be good at and wanted to work on. And second, the protective shield of a leader like that is really emboldening. And I learned that from Tom. So out of those skills you mentioned, you talk about leading creative people. You've led several think tanks over the years, like you're leading one right now. How do those lessons apply to your current role? Well, I think nobody will listen to what you say if what you do is different from that. So a big part of how I try and lead the teams that I'm part of is to make sure that my actions are defining the culture and that I don't talk nonsense that I'm not willing to back up. 
because I think you get many chances to destroy your credibility with a group of people. And if you have credibility, it'll get you an awful long way. If people feel like you care about their problems, you understand what they're trying to do. I describe my job as the head of the foreign and defense team at AEI. My work is getting trash off of people's lawns, right? So that they can do the work they're there to do and that it's important to the institution to have them do well. I love what you said about credibility. I once read that credibility is like a water balloon that you know you fill up over time, but then all it takes is a single pinprick and you lose it all. Yeah, I think if a team finds you untrustworthy, they will begin to hedge against you. And I think trust can be resilient, right? All of us have relationships where we've disappointed people and you try and prove yourself worthy of another chance. But I think most people are too cautious in standing up for their people and not cautious enough about understanding that if you lose your credibility, it's going to be an enormously hard slog to get a team to succeed. Yeah, that actually, again, reminds me, my wife is one of the smartest people I know. And I know when we were in group settings, she's very quiet and she, you know, picks and chooses the things that she says and the things that she shares. And I'm like an open book. I don't stop and I don't shut up according to her. But, you know, I asked her like, why don't you participate more in some conversations? And she said, because I just go by the rule that, you know, if I say something, I want it to be pertinent and I want it to be important. I don't just want to talk for the sake of talking. And after she said that to me a couple of years ago, I found to your point, when you say something, let it be profound or people aren't going to listen to what you're saying anymore if you just talk for the sake of talking. <laughs> yeah, I think there's something to that. But I would raise one small counterpoint that I think is especially important for women because there is a social tendency to treat people who talk more as though they are the natural leaders of the group. You know, Condi Rice taught me that, it, especially if you're the only woman in a group, you should make a point of asking one smart question or saying one smart thing, because otherwise people won't think of you as somebody potentially leading the group. Speaking of that, I've attended a lot of national security conferences over the years. And a lot of the panels I've seen with you on them, it's you and three or four other old white guys. How has that been coming up in the national security community as a successful woman? Do you think that there's still a great underrepresentation of women in national security? My experience, I think, is anomalous. As I talk to the sisterhood, you know, the group of 30 or so of us who care about national security policy and roughly have similar kind of jobs and trajectories. I do find my experience is pretty strikingly as an outlier, and I'm not sure why my experience is an outlier. It seems to me there are a few possibilities. One is that I went to work in a high-functioning meritocracy when I was 26, right? My job in the joint staff. And I had people teach me how to behave in a way that I was treated like I belonged. And so I haven't had a lot of the challenges that some other women have in other workplaces where they experience sexual harassment routinely or bad bosses that were marginalizing them. A lot of those kinds of things I haven't had the experience of. 
A second way I think my professional life has been different than many other women is that I was raised by female mentors, Condi Rice at Stanford, Catherine Kelleher at the University of Maryland. And so I always had a strong coterie of female role models who were looking out for me, who were investing in me having the social capital to understand situations. And I also had a lot of great bosses who were the fathers of daughters who also helped me understand how to be a successful professional if I was the only woman around. And I guess thirdly, I think because I'm politically conservative, I have a tendency to ascribe other explanations to similar experiences. And so I'm not quite sure why my experience is different from most people, but my experience has been that for me professionally, with only one small and fairly recent exception, being a woman has always been professionally advantageous for me. Lieutenant colonels on the joint staff were a dime a dozen, but everybody could just put me in their calendar by my first name because I was one of one. And I've had opportunities where it was viewed as advantageous to have a different perspective from everybody else in the room. And only once did I have this sort of shocking experience of having a selection committee tell me that I was so breezy and casual that they couldn't see me as a leader of an organization. But again, that was like five years ago. So I think it says a lot more about the selection committee than it said about me. You talked about having, you know, women mentors coming up. And I know for a lot of men, you know, we typically have just other men as mentors. So I I know I consider myself fortunate. Somebody we both know, Dr. Nadia Shadlow, has been a mentor of mine for several years now. And I remember, I think it was the Future of War Conference for New America was where I first met you. But Dr. Shadlow, I mean, she made it a point to go around and introduce me to everybody there because I definitely did not belong at that conference. And so I I just think it's great to have another perspective and not just the same. So what I notice running organizations is that unquestionably diversity gets you better outcomes. It is in organizations' self-interest to make sure that they nurture and reward diversity whether it's income diversity, geographic diversity, gender diversity, race diversity, religious diversity, the more facets of something that we are attuned to, the better decisions we can make. And the more creativity you get, if it's not enough to make diversity tolerated, you have to make it celebrated. If you want people to feel trusting enough to give their creativity full sail. So that's a very interesting topic because I found myself in a lot of conversations recently talking about not diversity, but equality. And I don't know if that's an unfair expectation because I'm not sure that anybody in this world is created equally, but obviously the equal opportunity is I think what people are searching for. And diversity is very important in an organization. How do we get to that point, do you think, where it's equal opportunity. Is that reachable or is that is that a fantasy in your lifetime, you think? It's reachable, but we're a long way from it. The working at it makes a huge difference though, right? Like being open to answers, 
other than our own, searching for people who aren't in our network, who might have the skills to succeed at jobs we're hiring for. An example I think about a lot recently, which is that universities and programs that are elite in their selection process tend not to be elite in their credentialing process, right? So the fact that I went to Stanford should tell you a lot about me as an 18-year-old kid. It actually tells you less about me as a 22-year-old kid because Stanford wasn't going to let me fail out. So elite credentialing is perpetuating privilege because if you are elite in your selection, you're not going to let people fail because then that speaks to an elite selection process that's deficient. And if all we look at are people's credentials, that tells us what opportunities were available to them. And so I try and be really strict when I am hiring and shaping a team to force us to be explicit about what are the skills we're looking for. And then go look in all sorts of places for those skills. And don't let lack of credentialing equal lack of skills. Also, you have to be really careful when you're interviewing. As you know, Major General McGee from the Army and I talk about this a lot. And the Army's trying to wrench its system to produce a broader aperture of good leaders. And so interviewing people in person actually allows our subliminal biases greater sale. So in brigade commander selections, they're now interviewing people behind screens. So you can't see whether she's somebody who looks like me or, you know, I've always thought people with big eyes and high cheekbones are smarter than people who have small beady eyes like Corey does. And so finding ways to acknowledge that all of us have selection preferences and trying to be open about what those are and find ways to either diversify or shield against them really matters in working towards equality. So I think that's a fantastic answer. And I don't know if you know this, but we just sat down with General McGee for the ah. um, BCAP results that came out today. And the only kind of caveat I would have to that is congratulations to Joe Byerly because he just made battalion command. But Yay! I'm congratulations, Joe. Thanks, Corey. Yeah. So I, I think I did well sitting behind a screen <laughs> answering well, questions. That's what I was going to say. If you're, if you need to see the in-person and they succeed, I think Joe might be the, uh, the opposite <laughs> <of that. laughs> just kidding. Gonna, just kidding. Gonna edit this out, right? <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> Very good. Today's episode is also sponsored by veteran owned Alpha Coffee Company. Their premium 100% Arabica coffee is freshly roasted for a bold, delicious flavor. Alpha Coffee supports veteran charities and has donated over 19,000 bags of coffee to deployed troops. They also offer a combinable 10% military discount and 10% off for subscriptions. Taste the Alpha difference. Purchase their coffee today from their online store or via Amazon Prime. 
No, so, you know, I love that you talked about, you know, families a little bit and you talked about the daughters of fathers and I just, it brings me the opportunity to talk a little bit about your family because I think you have an incredible family and background. You know, your father had a very successful career as a pilot in the Air Force, your brother, a 25 year uh, career in the Air Force. And you mentioned earlier when we were speaking offline that, you know, even the next generation now that the, your nephew, I believe, is a captain in the Air Force. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and how that shaped you? And I know you're younger sisters in in politics as well. What was it like, I guess, as a child growing up and how did that childhood shape who you are today? So when you say that, I guess the Shockey tribe counts as a military family, but we didn't really feel like one. You know, my dad ended his Air Force service when I was a really little kid. And mostly what I remember from my dad flying in the California National Guard was him coming home with those great box lunches of fried chicken that he would bring home for me. We never lived on military bases. So I didn't have the experience of really being a military family, but it shaped me in a bunch of ways. One important way is if my brother hadn't chosen to go to the Air Force Academy, my family couldn't have afforded to send me to Stanford. So that was one huge way in which it shaped my life. A second is that I was very fortunate to have a brother a year and a half older than me because I spent my whole childhood trying to be as strong as him, as fast as him, as brave as him, as smart as him. And it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I paused to think how incredibly irritating it must have been to have me as his younger sister. So Kurt's great. He was an Air Force pilot, taught at the Air Force Academy, was at NATO, and his last job was as the academic dean at the Air War College. But the real talent in the Shockey family is my kid sister, Christina, who is a business founder and was Mrs. Obama's communications director when she was the first lady. And my sister also organized the team that brought the gay marriage case to the Supreme Court. So she is a lion-hearted lefty and one of the best strategists I know. That's awesome. I can't even imagine what Thanksgiving dinners are like at the Shockey family house. (laughs) (laughs) They're actually really nice because we're the children of parents who believe that people of good faith can differ on really important things and maybe all be right at the same time. So on that, you know, you're talking about discourse, Um, you know, we've seen the rise of social media over the last decade and kind of how it's affected, you know, public sentiment and and the public's outlook. And there've been quite a few former and current military leaders that have kind of waded into uh, the political sphere. Like, how do you think that affects civil relations, like in in the near term and the long term? It's a really interesting question. My guess is that the different services are going to take very different approaches, right? Like the Marine Corps will be stiff-necked about it. The leadership will be bad at it. And the 18-year-old Lance Corporals are all going to show us what Marine Corps culture is like because they're all going to be on TikTok. And the Air Force is going to be, you know, Mouseketeers, trying to showcase only its best qualities. And we'll have a difficult time squaring that with the institutional experience. The army is going to be earnest and well-meaning and plodding. 
And as on so many other social issues, they'll probably be the first ones to get it right because they're the service that's closest to American culture more broadly. And so you can already see all sorts of good models emerging. Lady Loves Taft on Twitter, (laughs) the TRADOC, Deputy Commanding General, you know, there are all sorts of good examples already out there. And my guess is the Army will have a diversity of examples. And then the Navy will probably have, you know, the captain's perspective. You know, when you're at sea, you make your own rules, would be my guess about how the differences will play out. I think it's really important for all of those four perspectives to be visible on social media, because the biggest problem in civil military relations is actually lack of familiarity, because that leads to apathy. The American public doesn't know and therefore can't understand or sympathize what military life is like for service families. And so the adolescent bullshit that Marine Lance corporals are going to put up is actually an important and genuine perspective of the American military. And so I would love to see a lot more engagement on social media so that those of us who aren't in military service or people who don't know military culture can be armchair travelers of it. It's really important. That is a very interesting outlook. I've never thought about it that way. You know, show a mirror like the diversity of American society instead of the monks that a lot of times we end up being, you know. So that's a great perspective, Corey. Social media is how all of us are getting experience one degree removed from people actually doing things. And so it's really important for the military not to worry too much about looking like comic book heroes, because actually normality, treating our military like they're normal, like they're integral to American society is the best civil military relationship. Yeah. First off, I'll say thank you very much, because now that you said bullshit, I have to check the explicit box. This podcast (laughs) contains explicit language. Okay. Last time we have Corey Shockey. (laughs) (laughs) That reminds me of a funny thing I actually saw on social media, and I'll probably get it wrong, but it basically said how the services are so different that a simple phrase like, hey, secure that building and the army is going to go set up a security perimeter around it and the Marines are going to go in and they're going to kill everybody in the building and the Air Force is going to go and take out a 10-year lease on the building. So (laughs) I'm coming from the Air Force, so, uh, you know, an Air Force vet, so I can poke fun at them a little bit. Now that we've completely thrown this episode out the window, Corey, I've got to ask you, since I'm the nerd of, of Jacob and I, I've got to ask you. So one of the things that I've learned a lot from you over the years is about strategy through your articles, your books, your podcast. You know, a lot of our audience are, you know, junior members of the military. And so could you just talk a little bit about what strategy is, what it's not? And then for the officers, why it's important to understand strategy in the first place? Oh, I love that question. So I make a distinction that President Eisenhower made between policy and strategy. Policy is what you want to do. Strategy is how you're going to do it. And the best strategists are all desperate paranoiacs. 
There are people who are always worried that a trap door is going to open underneath them and they're going to fall into the sewer beneath the street. Because being a good strategist means you live in a constant state of trying to imagine what could go wrong and shielding or rebalancing your approach against it going wrong, right? So there's no good strategist who's a well-adjusted confident individual is the first thing I'd say. The best definition of strategy, Sir Lawrence Friedman gives at the start of his book, Strategy, which is taken (laughs) from the fighter Mike Tyson, who said, everybody's got a strategy until you get punched in the face. And that gets to the fundamental element that strategy is not a plan. Strategies, a constant rebalancing of what am I trying to do? What are the means available to me? And how do I orchestrate those means in a cost effective or people effective or a way that matters to me? Right? So, strategy isn't planning and strategy isn't policy. Strategy is a limber way to think about problem solving. So, then that brings me to an interesting point. And I've been in a lot of conversations that, you know, from a military standpoint, we talk about tactical, we talk about operational, and we talk about strategic. So when I think of strategy, I'm definitely thinking long-term. And I've been part of conversations and some people kind of allude to the fact that a lot of our policymakers and planners, I know you said it's not really policy and planning, but are unable to think strategically. And we don't do it as well as some other countries that we may be involved with when it comes to, you know, a great power competition. What are your thoughts on that? And do we think well strategically? Do we, you know, have a good strategic outlook or could we improve in certain areas? Yeah. So I've been having this running gunfight with Jim Mattis for 13 or so years where he's always saying that, you know, we haven't had a strategy since the first Bush administration in the early 1990s. And it's just not true, right? <laughs> Our strategy as a country is to try and create an international order of free societies who abide by liberal rules and defend each other. And that's our basic strategy. That's how you get to wanting China to become a responsible stakeholder, right? Saying we're not afraid of a powerful, prosperous China, provided that it plays by the rules. And I know it's fashionable now to say that that was a failed strategy. And I don't think that's true because it's true that China has decided that's not what it wants to be. But to say it was a failed strategy ignores the fact that we're not only trying to affect China, we're trying to affect everybody's policy on China. And if we had said 20 years ago, China's evil, we want to keep them poor, it would be a lot harder to get other countries on our side to support the rules, to defend security together, and to keep moving towards being free societies themselves. You know, political scientists like to think they're tough-minded and talk about being realists, right? Like everybody's going to be Henry Kissinger and say, you know, that only power matters and every state behaves the same, which is nonsense, right? 
Germany's different than France for a whole lot of good reasons. And Germany's afraid of its own shadow, again, for a whole lot of good reasons. And so the way to understand how a state behaves internationally is to look at the way a state behaves domestically. So if you think we shouldn't care about the international order, try and imagine what it's going to be like if China gets to set the rules and is able to enforce them, right? That there will be no more dumb Lance Corporals on TikTok and you'll get social credit scores based on whether you, I don't know, uh, go to church on Sunday or turn your lights out at 11 o'clock. It'll be like we're all West Point cadets. Or listen to this podcast. I think that would be <laughs> some good social credits. Right? So values actually matter hugely in how states behave. And they especially matter hugely in a country like the United States, where the government's very porous. You know, there are going to be 4,000 new political appointees, literally 4,000, with the new administration. And all of them are going to have to worry about what you guys say on this podcast, what I write in my Bloomberg column, because ideas are the currency of policymaking. And we have a system that's designed to be maximally porous for good ideas, but then that also means it's maximally porous for bad ideas. So I'm not sure I don't have many conversations with him, but I might venture a guess that those statements may lead to 13 more years of discussion with uh, <laughs> former Secretary of Defense Mattis. Oh, uh, I went around here and there. Since, you know, there may be people out there listening, you know, as you're talking, I'm like, man, I need to get smarter on strategy. So what books would you recommend to someone to kind of get a, a better feel for strategy or, you know, just to understand the current world environment that we're, that we're operating in? So I think one of the worst mistakes intellectuals like me and you guys make is treating strategy as though it's a high priesthood. And I would encourage people to read promiscuously because you can learn lessons of strategy anywhere. You don't have to read Alfred Thayer Mahan, who by the way, writes badly and is boring. Read Bill Veck, the great baseball man. I actually, when I teach my course on strategy, I actually have a section from Bill Veck's book, The Hustler's Handbook. He has a chapter in it called, Where Are the Drunks of Yesteryear? Where he talks about the fact that we're trying to make baseball players respectable citizens instead of making them good baseball players. He has two great lines in it. One is, Decry it if you will. Grover Cleveland Alexander was a better pitcher drunk than he was sober. Now, that's actually some pretty elegant strategy to understand what are the conditions that are going to set my pitcher up to be successful. And in Grover Cleveland Alexander's case, it was let him get drunk before the game. The second great passage from Bill Veck's chapter in Hustler's Handbook is he says that Babe Ruth was a terrible example to the youth of America. And that's why the youth of America loved him. So I would encourage people not to be precious about where you can learn strategy. You can learn it anywhere. You can learn it playing poker. There's a great passage. You know, the first Western novel was Owen Wister's 
the Virginian. And the hero of that magnificent novel at one point reads Shakespeare's Henry V. And the hero of Owen Wister's The Virginian says, I bet you could learn strategy playing cards with that boy, Henry, right? Like he could learn strategy anywhere. So I don't think we need to be precious, but I will tell you a couple of my favorite books about strategy. One is by Ben Horowitz, who's one of the founders of the Andreas and Horowitz investment firm in Silicon Valley. And he wrote a genuinely outstanding book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And it's a great book about organizational leadership. Another of my favorites is Lawrence Friedman's Strategy, A History. And it's a doorstopper, my friends. You don't have to read it all at once. But he, again, takes strategy out of the context of military strategy. The first chapter in the book is exploring whether Adam and Eve had a better strategy than obeying God available to them. So there are lots of ways to learn about strategy. It's about the practice of limber decision-making. So you don't just need to learn military strategy. Military strategy is a subset of strategy. I personally think watching baseball games is a fabulous way to learn strategy because you always have to decide, do I leave a weakening pitcher in or do I put in a reliever if I might need that reliever for a long stretch tomorrow? Or, or, or there are so many variables that go into a winning baseball team that it allows you to think about strategy because you're always having to rebalance all the different variables. So Corey, I can say that that's one of the goals of this podcast. And I love that answer about strategy because we talk a lot about the fact that you can find leadership and you can kind of substitute leadership for strategy in your answer there that we try to show that you don't need to just talk to a military leader or, you know, a fortune 500 leader that you can find leadership in some of the, you know, odd places that you might not think you could find it like a baseball coach. Yeah. And we've, you know, Corey, we've interviewed members of popular bands and like, there's no better way to figure out how to keep your ego in check than to be a part (laughs) of a, a team that's like sold out Madison Square Garden. Twice. Absolutely. It's like that great commercial that Phil Jackson, the former Chicago Bulls and LA Lakers coach was in where, you know, the top chef is yelling at his subordinate and turns to Phil Jackson and says, you have no idea how difficult managing these personalities is. (laughs) Another great read, if you want to understand strategy is read Jane Austen's novels. Because they're all about people who have very limited room to maneuver and very limited means trying to do well for themselves. So you can learn strategy in all sorts of places. So Corey, I can just say that I have absolutely loved this interview and I thank you so much for taking the time with us. We have one final question that we like to ask our guests and that is based off of Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why. What is your why for what you do? What is, and, and if it's different from when you started, but today, what is the why behind Corey Shockey? So I love the work of making hard things accessible, whether it's helping people who don't know anything about the military to understand what the American military is like, 
or whether it's, you know, making strategy accessible if you could never read your way through Alfred Thayer Mahan, or whether it's explaining to people the basic economics of trade policy. So for me, the why is that the more we engage people in understanding what's happening, the safer we all are. Yeah. Again, I can't thank you enough. This was a really great conversation and we appreciate you taking the time and coming on the show with us. It was a great privilege, my friends. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. Thank you so much, Corey. And if you want to just come on and be the third host, I'd be glad to have you. (laughs) Thank you very much. I see you're trying to find a replacement for yourself now that you're a big shot battalion commander. I think it was me. He was trying to find a replacement (laughs) for All right. Next week, we've got Jacob and Corey. Thank you, my friends. Yeah, thank you, Corey. Thanks, Corey. Thank you again to all our listeners for joining us on another episode of From the Green Notebook. Check us out at fromthegreennotebook.com, where you can download past episodes, read some of our previous blog posts, and sign up for our monthly reading list and Sunday email. If you enjoy the podcast so far, please subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter at FTG Notebook, as well as Instagram and Facebook. You can find us by just searching from the Green Notebook. So this is Jacob Garonsky signing off and hope you tune in to our next episode. I came from the mud, there's dirt on my hands, strong like a tree, there's roots where I stand, oh I've been running from the law, hope they won't shoot me down soon.